2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 22, but I'm going to start in verse 9 to give you the context. Hear the word of the Lord. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left at Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth." The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. How a man meets his end is something that we all remember. I had a friend in high school. It was the Rogers family, Will Will Rogers. His grandfather, Orville Rogers, lived until his late 90s, and he, made, he shattered world records for running, uh, I think it was 100 meters, 200 meters, in his, in his, late, in his mid to late 90s. Uh, how someone meets and prepares for their end and what they're doing as they prepare for their end says a lot about the character of that man. Here tonight, we have the final words written of the Apostle Paul. This is him meeting his end, you might say. It says a lot about his character, a lot about what we are to remember of the Apostle Paul. The context, as we've been going through 2 Timothy, the context of 2 Timothy is that Paul is on trial for his life. He's been deserted by all of his friends. Luke alone is with him. He's opposed by his enemies. He's unsupported at his trial, as we will see in just a minute. What does he do in this context in which he's deserted? Is he sulking? Is he self-pitying? Is he angry and bitter about what's happening to him? No, he's not. I would like to read from John Stott a summary of this passage and really the whole letter. Here's what John Stott writes. Underlying the whole letter of 2 Timothy is Paul's basic conviction that God has spoken through his prophets and apostles, and that this unique revelation 
the faith, the truth, the word, the gospel, the sound teaching has been committed to the church as a sacred deposit or treasure. Knowing the treasure or the sacred deposit entrusted to him, Paul, with the eminence of his own martyrdom and the natural weaknesses of Timothy, the opposition of the world, and the subtlety of Satan, Paul issues to Timothy his fourfold charge regarding the gospel. First, to guard the gospel because it is a priceless treasure. Second, to suffer for the gospel because it is a stumbling block to the proud. Third, to continue in the gospel because it is the truth of God. And finally, to proclaim the gospel because it is the good news of salvation. Timothy was called to be faithful in his generation. Where are the men and the women who will be faithful in our generation? They're urgently needed. From this passage, I would like us to consider three main things. First, how did God strengthen Paul in this dark hour? Second, how did God use Paul up until the very end of his life? And third, how can you be strengthened when you encounter dark hours? So first, how did God strengthen Paul in this dark hour, this dark moment? Secondly, how did, he, how did God use Paul until the very end of his life? And finally, how can God strengthen you in your dark hours? One of the most lonely and dark psalms is Psalm 22. It's the psalm that Jesus cries from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What commentators have noticed is that this text resounds with allusions to Psalm 22. Consider this from Kent Hughes. Verse 16 of our passage, everyone deserted me, alludes to Psalm 22, 1, why have you forsaken me? Verse 16, no one came to my support, references Psalm 22, 11, there is no one to help. Verse 17, I was delivered from the lion's mouth, alludes to Psalm 22, 21. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Verse 17, and all the Gentiles might hear it, is similar to Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Verse 18 of our passage, and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, echoes Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight. Dominion belongs to the Lord. There's no doubt that this was a very dark moment for the apostle Paul. I wonder, and it certainly seems to be the case, that he may have been reflecting on the dark psalm of Psalm 22, perhaps even reflecting on Jesus' own death. In the midst of this darkness, he has no one there to help him. In verse 16, it says that no one came to his first defense. What does he mean by his first defense? Under, remember this was his second Roman imprisonment, under Roman law, There was a preliminary investigation in which, if you were accused, you could call witnesses on your behalf to speak in your favor, to uh, testify to your good name. You may even have someone advise you, like a lawyer would, would advise you today. But for whatever particular reason, no one came to Paul's defense. This 
is quite striking because he wrote the book of Romans. There was a church in Rome. Why is it that no one came to Paul's defense? Paul, the apostle Paul, is on trial. Many commentators think it is perhaps because around this time they were beginning to persecute Christians and people were afraid. They were afraid to speak up on Paul's behalf. That is one theory. Whatever the reason, Paul does not hold it against them. He says, may it not be charged against them. This may be referencing Acts chapter 7. I'm going to be referencing Acts a number of times tonight. You're welcome to flip there if you want, but I'm, I'm just going to reference them. I have it written down here. But Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being martyred, stoned. Paul, then Saul, perhaps was witnessing this. Stephen calls out in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He might be considering Stephen's last words. He was alone, but he was not alone. In verse 17, it says that the Lord stood by me. This also echoes something that we have from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 23. Now, when when Paul says, the Lord stood by me, that might not sound like a a very big deal, but indeed it was a very big deal. Perhaps the Lord Jesus physically appeared to him. Uh, Most people don't think that. Most people think that the Lord Jesus was present by his spirit in these, these final hours. But in Acts chapter 23, the Lord Jesus does appear to the Apostle Paul. Paul had been traveling to Jerusalem. He arrives in Jerusalem with Trophimus. Trophimus is mentioned here in verse 20. Trophimus was from Ephesus. He was a Gentile. When he was taken into Jerusalem, many of the Jews thought that the Apostle Paul took Trophimus into the inner courts where only Jewish men were allowed to go in the temple. It led to Paul's first arrest. In Acts Acts 22 and in Acts 23, Paul makes a defense before the Jewish people, finally before the Jewish council. He's He's beaten and he's imprisoned in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, it says this, that the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I'm going to read that one more time. The Lord stood by him. That's the same phrase that we have in our passage. Verse 17, the Lord stood by me. Not only that, but what does the Lord say to Paul in Acts 23? Take courage, for as you've testified about the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now here's Paul testifying on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord stood by him in fulfillment to what the Lord Jesus had said to him earlier. And the Lord stood by him. Anyone speaking in the name of the Lord Jesus, particularly ministers, this is perhaps their first calling, to testify to the facts. 
to testify to the facts about the Lord Jesus, the historical, reliable facts. Paul was also fulfilling his mandate. He had been charged to go, commissioned to go to the Gentiles. Here, it says that the message would be fully proclaimed. In verse 17, might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. This is Paul finishing the race, fighting the good fight and keeping the faith until the very end in fulfillment of his commission. He also says that he was rescued at the very end of verse 17, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. My family and I have had the opportunity to go to Caldwell Zoo a number of times. We have a family membership, by the way. It's the only way to go if you have a larger family. But in Caldwell Zoo, there's a place where you can see the lions. The lions are scary, but to, to kids, it's, uh, when you see the lions through, you know, through the screen, it gives this false sense of security. I mean, actually, maybe it's not a false sense, a true sense of security. But you don't really, you're not really afraid if the, the, the glass suddenly vanished, you'd be afraid, right? Because lions are ferocious. They eat, they eat meat. They eat, they eat people. Lions are ferocious. And what particular lion is Paul referring to here? The early Greek commentators believed that the lion being referred to was Nero, the emperor Nero. Josephus, who was a historian, Reported when Emperor Tiberius died, his death was reported, the lion is dead. So some early Greek commentators believe that he's referring to Nero. One thing he is not referring to is the Colosseum. Most likely this book was written in the mid-60s, 64 to 65 AD. That's when most commentators believe that Paul wrote this book, but the Colosseum would not be built, beginning, uh, would begin to be built in AD 72. It would be completed in AD 80. So the Colosseum most likely was not, had not yet been built. In addition to that, Paul was a Roman citizen. He would not likely have been thrown to the lions. Here's what John Calvin thinks about this phrase. I tend to agree with Calvin. He says that Paul makes use of this expression to denote danger in general, as if he had said, out of a blazing fire or out of the jaws of death. Paul means that it was not without wonderful assistance from God that he escaped, the danger being so great that but for this, he might have been immediately swallowed up. I think what Calvin's saying here is correct. I think he's referring to danger in general. At least that's my my interpretation. But regardless, what strikes me especially is in verse 18, that in the midst of this dark hour when Paul very likely knows what's ahead of him, he says that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. How can Paul say that? Here Paul is being tried for his life Does this mean that Paul thinks he's going to be released from prison? I don't think so. I don't think that that's what it means in verse 18. I think what it means is that Paul is assured that even if he is to meet his death, that his final destiny is assured. He knows the one with whom whom he has believed in. 
He knows the Lord Jesus who stood by him in the prison in Jerusalem, who was standing by him in the prison in Rome, and he knew his final destiny. He knew where he was going. And that's how he can say, and he's assured of it. There's not a doubt in his mind. He's assured of his final well-being. He knows that he may be executed, and even through that death, Paul believes that God would bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. This was Paul's Gethsemane, some people have said. It was that dark. It was Paul's Gethsemane. He was alone. Luke was there, but he was alone. God strengthened Paul through the gospel, through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing the facts, knowing the facts about the Lord. That's how he was strengthened. Secondly, how did God use Paul up until the end? We have a number of names that are mentioned here that indicate that Paul was being used up until his final hour. Two of the names, verse 19, Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is a variant of Priscilla. In Acts chapter 18, we meet Priscilla and Aquila. This is what is said in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. This is when Paul was in Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Priscilla and Aquila were companions of Paul. They were Jews. They were tent makers. They had fled from Rome to Corinth. And Paul stayed with them as, as his, their companion for probably over a year and a half. And in Romans chapter 16, they're mentioned, I think at least twice, but one of them is, is mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verses 3 and five, three through 5. Here's what Paul says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Romans 16, verses 3 through 4. Oh, and verse 5 says, Greet also the church in their house. It's striking to me that even though we have no indication that Aquila was uh, an ordained minister, he still classifies them as fellow workers in Jesus Christ, Priscilla and Aquila. I think informally it means that they were uh, co-workers toward the great end of proclaiming the word of God to the Gentiles. Now, I think it, it gives me great hope to know that there are many ways, informal ways, in which the aroma of Christ can be spread through you and through simple hospitality, through hosting things. Uh, anyway, I'm not sure if that's a phone or... I thought for a minute it was, amber. It was an amber alert. <laughs> okay. I apologize. I apologize. Um, coworkers, you can spread the aroma of Christ through simple acts of hospitality. You are able to spread the aroma of Christ and the aroma of the gospel through caring for people, through hosting events, 
when I was in southern Florida, I remember very distinctly, I did a number of things for various people. One time I rescued a duck. If you were at my ordination uh, service, you heard that story. But it was remarkable to me how many people came to the church because of simple acts of kindness, either by the pastor, Eric Hausler, or someone in the congregation had done some simple act of kindness that swelled, smelled sweet. It was the aroma of Christ. And they were drawn in to the aroma. Onesiphorus is mentioned here also. Uh, the household of Onesiphorus is mentioned earlier. Uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Onesiphorus traveled to Rome. Uh, where he searched for Paul and refreshed him. Onesiphorus likely did this at great expense to himself. Verse 20, we have a number of other names, Erastus and Trophimus. Erastus, it says, remained at Corinth. There is a little bit of debate about Erastus. There is another Erastus mentioned in chapter, Romans chapter 16, verse 23. The Erastus mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, was, it says, he says, greet Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cordus. Most people think that because Erastus was the city of treasurer of Rome, that was a different Erastus than the one mentioned here. The Erastus mentioned here is most likely the one mentioned in Acts 22, Acts 22, verse, excuse me, 19, verse 22. And in that passage, it says, Paul says, excuse me, Luke, who wrote Acts, says this, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, meaning Paul's helpers, Timothy and Erastus, Paul himself stayed in Asia for a while. Erastus, uh, like, like in some ways Priscilla and Aquila, um, although perhaps maybe form, more formally, like Timothy, was a co-worker, a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. Trophimus also is mentioned in other uh, places, particularly in Acts. I mentioned him earlier in verse 20. Uh, he's mentioned in Acts 21, verses 27 through 29. Trophimus was a Gentile from Ephesus, Some of the Jews thought that Paul had brought him into the inner courts of the temple, and it led to Paul's first arrest in Jerusalem. The comfort that I find from this is that Paul doesn't hold that against him. He's still carrying on a relationship with Trophimus many, many years later. I think it's evident of the grace that Paul extended to Trophimus. It clearly wasn't intended. He didn't intend to get Paul arrested. But Paul is continuing to carry on a relationship with Trophimus. We have four other names, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, mentioned in verse 21. We know less about these than the others, but here's what we do know. Linus succeeded, according to church history and early church history, and Irenaeus, the church father Irenaeus, succeeded Peter as the leader of the Roman church, according to Irenaeus and against heresies. Irenaeus wrote a book called Against Heresies, and that's where that name is found. One person, Pudens, I found conflicting evidence. I'll give it to you, even though I'm a little suspicious of what we do know. Most commentators said nothing about Pudens, but one commentator said this, 
I can find it. Ada Spencer in the New Covenant Commentary, which is edited by Michael Byrd and Craig Keener, in case you're interested. This is what he said about Pudens. Pudens was a member of the Glabrionis family, probably related to Aquila. His sons ran Roman thermal baths. Pudens married Claudia, who was British. The family eventually introduced Christianity into Britain. According to a repeated tradition, Peter lived in their house in AD 64. That's very interesting information. I can't say with 100% certainty that that is true. We, from what I read, I could never find the historical reference that this commentator was referring to, but I often was referred to legends and things, so I don't know if that is true, but I'm giving you that information in case you're interested. Um, Paul gives a few other, well, one other instruction before he says, the Lord be with your spirit. The instruction he gives to Timothy is to come before winter, verse 21. If you remember Pastor Johnson saying, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, that travel in the Mediterranean world was hazardous, particularly maybe even impossible during wintertime not like travel is today. It would have been, most people, many commentators think four-month journey, maybe at least two months. It would have taken him a long time. He ends the letter with, the Lord be with your spirit. This is the same way that Paul ends many of his letters. Consider Galatians, the end of Galatians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Philippians 4, the end of Philippians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That was Philippians 4.23. Philemon, verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I think it is one argument to the authenticity of this letter that Paul ends it in the same way that he would end many of his letters. Here's what John Stott says about this phrase. It would be difficult to find a better summary than these two sentences of the apostle's life and ambition. He received grace from Christ, then he returned glory to Christ. From him grace, to him glory. From him grace, to him glory. In all of our Christian life and service, we should desire no other philosophy than this. It's a great summary of it. We receive grace from the Lord. We give him glory. That is a great testimony to the apostle Paul and his life and ministry. What happened to the Apostle Paul after he penned this letter? In light of the evidence that we have, I think it is highly likely that he proclaimed the word to the audience that he had. Consider the testimony that we have even just of the book of Acts, and I'm not even including most of his sermons. Acts 22, Paul preaches to the Jews in Jerusalem. Acts 23, to the council of Pharisees and Sadducees. Acts 24, Paul preaches to Felix. Acts 25, Paul preaches to Festus. Acts 26, Paul preaches to King Agrippa. Acts 28, he preaches to the Roman Jewish leaders. I think it is highly likely that Paul proclaimed the gospel to the highest authority that he could to the, to the audience, to whoever would listen in his trial. That's what I think if he had the opportunity. I would have loved to have been there if he indeed proclaimed the gospel to Caesar himself. 
as a messenger of the great king of kings to a much smaller king, Caesar. Clement of Rome says that Paul, Clement of Rome, also one of the early uh, church leaders, claimed that Paul was taken outside of the city and beheaded at the Ostian Gate. In light of all of the evidence, internal evidence that we have from his letters, I think clearly Paul went to his death proclaiming the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, I think that evidence is, that's where the evidence leads. Finally, if Paul was used up until the very end of his life in many different people, Linus, Priscilla and Aquila, Erastus, Eubulus, Budens, if he was strengthened until the very end, how is it that you could be strengthened? How is it that you, today, in this, in this room and throughout the rest of your life, can be strengthened when you feel deserted by everyone, when you feel like you're going through some kind of Gethsemane? The passage would lead us to believe that the way we stand is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing the facts concerning the Lord Jesus. Paul knew the facts. He, was, he knew his scripture. This, this was no magic trick. There's no secret. It's the very ordinary things. The word of God, attending to it, in, intending it, attending to it in your own personal life, private worship, but also public worship, knowing scripture, praying to the Lord, taking the sacraments. These are the ways that God strengthens us. And we rely upon God's grace. Consider this too, that Jesus Christ went through the real Gethsemane. When Jesus was crying from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken in order that you would not be forsaken. That's the substitution. He was cut off in order that you could be brought in. He was crushed in order that you could stand. He was cast out in order that you could be adopted into the family. Do you know the price and the cost that, it, that he paid for you, for, for your, your soul's redemption? Many years ago, I had the opportunity this was a PCA church. I was a, uh, attending there many years ago, not a local church. And uh, they had a, a, a church meeting when they were discussing a, their senior pastor who was due to retire in about a year or two. And one of the members got up and said, you know, I think his name was Ron. And he, she got up and said, Ron is, is our rock. And... I really appreciated in God's providence that we sang this hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, this evening. Because there's that, obviously the refrain, Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And there's that phrase in there that says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I thought for many years that 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 word frame was a, a feeling. We don't trust our feelings, and that's true. But as I was looking that word up, frame really refers, many people think it was referring to a person. The truth is that none of us, none of us are rocks. 
None of us are rocks. Yes, we will be raised, but it's only because the Lord Jesus Christ is our rock, and he was raised. I will pass away. Every pastor who's ever preached the word of God will pass away. The Apostle Paul passed away, and Timothy was left, and those who had followed his teaching. But the thing is that the Lord Jesus Christ was still standing, even when the Apostle Paul died. And he, if you, if you put your trust in him, if you pray to him, not just a one-time thing, but every day, if you walk with him, if you commit your life to him, then he will stand by you too. I pray that that would be your destiny, that the Lord would strengthen you to stand in your time of need. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the hope of eternal life. We thank you that we do not follow cleverly devised myths. We don't follow fables and stories. We don't follow things that people made up 2,000 years ago, but rather we follow the facts, the eyewitness testimony that was written down for our edification, for our nourishment, and that behind these facts stands a person who's alive and reigning today, the Lord Jesus Christ, that as he stood by the Apostle Paul in his own Gethsemane, that dark hour, so that same Lord, through the Spirit of the risen Christ, will stand by us as well. We thank you for that hope and promise and assurance. We pray that we would not trust feelings, that we would not trust cultural messages, but we would stand on the rock of Christ. The one who died has risen again, has ascended to your right hand, and is ruling and reigning now with all power and authority, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. May that give us hope to stand in our hour of need. In Jesus' name, amen.